The Gospel reading today, which is also our sermon text, is John 5, verses 1 through 17. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed and some manuscripts include the following explanation, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. End of added explanation. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he had already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jewish religious leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish religious leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jewish Jewish religious leaders were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is the gospel of the Lord. We are preaching through the Gospel of John, and today's text that we just heard read was John 5, 1 to 17. The first verse starts out, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Every line in scripture has a purpose, and this verse sets the background for what is about to follow in John 5. Now, we're going to have three sermons from John 5. So I think it would be good to spend a little time now and learn about this feast that Jesus went up to. So part one of today's sermon is the Feast of Weeks. The Torah requires that every year all Jewish men go to the house of the Lord in observance of each of the three pilgrim feasts. Exodus 23, starting in verse 14. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, 
That's Passover or in Hebrew, Pesach. You shall keep, verse 16 now, you shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits. That's called the feast of weeks or in Hebrew, Shavuot. And you shall keep the feast of ingathering in the end of the year. That's tabernacles or in Hebrew, Sukkot. Thus, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. Well, Jesus as the Messiah was obligated to obey the entire law. And John 5 is likely referring to him going to one of these required feasts. But which one was it? David Stern's commentary on the Jewish New Testament argues that it was the Feast of Weeks. It's so-called because it involves two days that are seven weeks apart. The initial day is first fruits, and the final day is Shavuot, which is the Hebrew for weeks. Now, Shavuot is the feast day. Sometimes it's called Pentecost because it is the 50th day from Shavuot, and Pentecostus is, is Greek for 50th. Okay. Now, Stern believes Shavuot then is the day that all the events in John 5 took place. But why Shavuot? Why not Passover? Or why not tab Tabernacles? Well, John refers to feasts 24 times. 23 of those, he clearly identifies the feast, and it's either Passover or Tabernacles. John 5.1 is the only place in John that he gives a feast without naming it, and Shavuot is the only feast that John never names. So by the process of elimination, you might say, well, that's probably Shavuot. But, but there's more. Just a few verses earlier in John 4.45, John tells us that the Galileans were discussing all that Jesus had recently done during the Passover week. Right? John 5, 1 then opens, after this, there was a feast. The feast that comes right after Passover in the Jewish year is Shavuot, making Shavuot clearly the feast that's in John 5, 1. Now, Peter, if you would come up and help me here, the description of this feast in the Torah is going to uh, help us, I think, with our text to understand what's going on in John 5. John 5. All right, the Feast of Weeks um, brackets the barley and the wheat har harvests. All right, so what, ha what happens is there's these two celebrations. Leviticus 23 says that the barley harvest is to begin on first fruits. That's the day after the Sabbath of Passover week. All right, on that day, the high priest is to lift up the first sheaf of barley to heaven as an offering to the Lord. Then, seven weeks later, Shavuot is observed, which marks the end of the wheat harvest. On that day, the high priest waves two loaves of challah bread towards heaven as the second of these two first fruits offerings.
Thank you so much, Peter. Wow. The rabbis say that the Feast of Weeks is messianic. Why do they say that? Messiah is the son of David. David is an ancestor of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth entered the fields of Boaz on first fruits, and she asked him to be her kinsman redeemer on Shavuot. At that time when she asked him, Boaz gave her six grains of barley as a promise that he would return to make her his wife. The rabbis say those six grains of barley are symbolic. They're symbolic of the six spirit gifts that will be given to the Messiah. They're the six spirit gifts that Ruth will pass down through Jesse to her great-grandson David and then on to the messianic king. Isaiah 11, 1 to 3 tells what they are. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Those are the six and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And thus it was that on Shavuot, the most messianic day in all of Judaism, that Jesus declared himself to be the Son of God, the Messiah, with power to raise the dead. John 5, verse 21. Sorry for whoever has this passage in a couple of weeks. I'm stealing it from you here. John 5, 21. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life. Verse 25, I tell you, a time is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. First fruits portrays the resurrection by the buried seeds sprouting to new life. Jesus rose from the dead the first day of the week, the day after the Passover Sabbath, thus fulfilling firstfruits exactly at the time the high priest was lifting that first sheaf of barley to heaven. Then seven weeks later on Shavuot, Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit, promising his return, just like Boaz gave Ruth the six grains, the six spirit gifts promising his return for her. The New Testament is not unaware of this symbolism. John 12, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 20, but Messiah has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in the Messiah all will be made alive. But each in turn, Messiah the firstfruits. Then when he returns, those who belong to him, the latter fruits. The Feast of Weeks 
pictures sanctification. That's what it's all about. The barley sheaf raised on first fruits sanctifies the entire harvest. That means it sets it aside as being something special for God's glory. The loaves of bread waved on Shavuot signified this grain is to be used for good things, good bread. In the same way, Jesus' resurrection on first fruits sanctifies all believers. And then the coming of the Holy Spirit on, Sh 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 on Shavuot shows that the Holy Spirit comes to us, the latter fruits, that we should do good works through him, just like those Shavuot loaves. For sanctification is like the baking of bread. It's a process. And so what Moses wrote in the Torah about this feast relates to what we're going to learn in John chapter 5 about sanctification. As Jesus told the leaders in John 5, verse 46, and sorry to some other guy out there who's preaching that one, John 5, 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for Moses wrote of me. Those feasts are about Christ. All right, so that brings us to continuing back with our scripture and our story, and so we come to part two of the sermon. The House of Grace. John 5, 2 and 3. There is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So we have a public bath larger than a football field where a huge crowd had gathered in need of cleansing, healing, and forgiveness. Now, we don't know who added the explanation that some manuscripts have and some don't, um, but it says that some there were expecting a miracle. They believed that whenever those waters were stirred by an angel, if they could get in them, they'd be healed. Now, this pool has been excavated. I quote here from the biblicalarchaeology.org. Um, it says, in 1956, a German archaeologist unearthed a pool surrounded by four porticos with a fifth portico in the center. The site is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate. This pool is believed to have been at the time of Christ a mikvah, that is a ritual purification bath. A century or two later, Roman citizens in Jerusalem had medicinal baths constructed at the pool because they believed the waters promoted healing. A mikvah is a place to wash and be sanctified. We see the sanctification theme here. And other symbols of sanctification by grace are found in our text. Bethesda means the house of grace. Five colonnades were there. Five is the number of grace by faith in scripture. Later in John, Jesus will say he's the good shepherd. And this pool was right by the sheep gate. Jesus will also say he is the gate through which his sheep pass to be set apart and protected. Once again, scripture is very clear that first fruits, sanctification, and mikvah all relate together in terms of us being chosen by grace and set apart by the Spirit to do good works. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits 
to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Down to verse 16 of 2 Thessalonians 2. Now may our Lord Jesus the Messiah himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Verse 11, and such were you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Besides these symbols of grace, John chapter 5 gives us a tangible sign of grace. For one man had been waiting 38 years to be healed. Invisible among the multitude thronging the pool. But Jesus saw him. John 5, 5 and 6. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? That statement hits at the heart of what sanctification is all about. One might say, well, of course he wants to be healed. Who, who wouldn't want to be healed? But when God desires for us to remove some weakness from our life, often we're hesit we hesitate to let it go. We can become attached to our shortcomings. We can use them as excuses. We can use them to define who we think we are. If this invalid were healed, he could no longer sit and beg. He would have to find a job. He would have to face new responsibility. He'd lived with his disability for 38 years. Could he handle the life-changing upheaval of being healed? Now, that he had been destitute for 38 years is important because I love numbers <laughs> and every number in scripture <laughs> has a meaning. Once Israel had been destitute for 38 years when they were asked if they wanted to be healed. Deuteronomy 2.14, Moses said, from the time of our leaving Kadesh Barnea, where you rebelled that would not go in, until we crossed the brook Zerad was 38 years. There were two years before that where they were wandering around and hadn't tried to go in the first time. But from that first to the second, 38 years. Like the man who lay at Jesus' feet, the Israelites then stood at the portals to the promised land, just as they had 38 years earlier. And Joshua asked them, just like Jesus asked this man, do you really want to leave the wilderness? Joshua 1, verse 11. Joshua says, Within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. With the implication being, will you go this time or not? Verse 16, they answered, All that you have commanded us, we will do. Israel desired to go forward. And so did this invalid, but 
he didn't know how. The only way that he could possibly understand was to go into the stirred waters, but he was unable to walk, let alone push past a crowd to get in there. He did not even dare to think that Jesus was offering him healing. When Jesus said, do you want to be healed? He interpreted this to mean, what's wrong with you? Why haven't you gotten into the water by now? And so he answered in John 5, 7, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am trying to drag myself in, another steps down in front of me. So the man laying there at Jesus' feet hoped that Jesus might assist him to get into the water. But Jesus knew that a person cannot be healed just by entering a pool. We can never take ourselves to the promised land. Only the Lord can do that. John 5, verse 8. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. When we ask the Lord to heal us, I mean, he's willing and able to do so. This man received more than he had ever hoped for, because God blesses us more than we could ever imagine. But what happens after the Lord heals us? Satan then comes to try to steal our joy. He tries to bring us back under his bondage, and many of us here today have felt that. So in John 5, 9, there is an added ominous foreshadowing. Now that day was the Sabbath. (laughs) Satan chose to use the holiness of the day to cast doubts, to cause problems, Because you see, Jesus had told him to take up his bed and walk. And that was considered to be a sin. So we're ready for part three of the sermon. Now that day was the Sabbath. Satan sent his thugs to steal this man's joy and to re-enslave him. Chapter 5, verse 10. So the Jewish religious leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, the ESV, if you have one in front of you there, says the Jews said to the man, which is kind of redundant because Jesus and everybody else in this whole story is Jewish. But there's a footnote in the ESV study Bible. I want to read this to you. It says, The Greek word eodioi refers specifically here to Jewish religious leaders and others under their influence who opposed Jesus at that time. So the religious leaders were out to catch anybody they could who might be breaking their rules. And a homeless man carrying his bed on the Sabbath, that's an easy target. But the Torah actually doesn't forbid carrying things on the Sabbath at all. Exodus 20 says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Ah, but what is work? (laughs) Jeremiah 17.21 has an application. It says, thus says the Lord, take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in through the gates of Jerusalem. The intent there seems pretty clear. On Shabbat, You should not carry loads to the marketplace or engage in 
regular activities of commerce at the, at the city gates. For example, the, the Talmud, which explains all these things, said that on Shabbat, it is permissible to carry a needle and thread in case of a wardrobe malfunction, unless you are a tailor. <laughs> if you're a tailor, you cannot carry a needle and thread because that is your regular work. But nowhere does God imply in any stretch or should anyone infer from this that a homeless man could not carry his bed on the, on the Sabbath. For a homeless person, a bedroll was everything they owned. It was their bed. It was their coat. It was the thing that kept them warm at night. It was all their world, worldly goods. Okay. To say that it was a sin to carry a bedroll marked every poor person as a sinner because they had to carry theirs. And then the leaders could say, we don't have to help sinners. It was a ruse to get around the other provisions of the Torah to aid the needy and the poor. They thought they didn't have to do it. But the healed man here today was on his game, and John loves having poor, uneducated people make fools of the people or not. And John 5, 11 to 13, the man answered them, the man who healed me. That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know it was who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. There was a crowd in the place. So after he said, the man who healed me told me to carry it, you might think he said, who is this wonderful man who healed you? Oh. Who is this horrible man who told you to pick up your bed and walk? That's all they could see here. They could not see that the pathway to a sanctified life is not in obeying rules. It's in living with God and others in love, mercy, and humility. The healed man also needed to learn about a sanctified life too. And there were signs he was ready to learn. For Jesus found him in the temple. Now you see, he had not previously been allowed to go into the temple because no one with any sort of a physical deformity was allowed into the temple. They were excluded. But now that he was whole, he could enter the gates. 5.14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. It's really encouraging that the temple is where this man's new legs first took him. And we, we, and we can learn from him. right? In our natural state, we are unable to fellowship with God. But when we're cleansed, we can enter into his presence. That's where our redemption should first take us. But that only begins our sanctification. Because Jesus told the man, sin no more. Brother George Dulac told me that that is in the Greek in the present imperative tense. <laughs> that means Jesus was asking him for immediate and a complete change in attitude and way of life a turn to good works that would glorify God. When my oldest son was just turned five, he had just turned five, one night late he came downstairs, said, Dad, I, I want to accept Jesus. I want to become a Christian. I said, Michael, you're just way too young. You know, you don't, you're too young. You have to get older and learn, learn about sin. He started confessing his sins. <laughs> 
It was awesome. So we prayed. He accepted the Lord, but he was so young, I was worried. So every night as we said his evening prayers, I said, tell me again how you became a believer. And one night he said, no, I won't tell you. Why not? It didn't work. I'm still sinning. <laughs> That's when I knew he was old enough. And we had a long talk about sanctification. Right, sanct you don't become perfect when you become a Christian. You have a lifelong process of sanctification becoming closer to the Lord. This man's physical healing had only begun the process of his full healing in body, soul, and spirit. He needed to pursue righteousness. Jesus said, stop sinning or something worse might happen. Well, what, what could happen? Matthew 12, 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. And it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Our hearts need good things to replace the evil. And First Fruits teaches, among other things, that what we need is the fruit of the Spirit who lives in us and who sanctifies us. Um, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are what we need. These are the Shavuot loaves. They're the things we need in our life that we need to pursue. And so we come to part four. Some of you were hoping there was only three parts, but this is the last part, part four, resting in the Lord. After the man left Jesus, he ran and told the leaders who it was that had healed him. And their response was to accuse Jesus of being a Sabbath break breaker because he'd healed on the Sabbath. That's even worse than bed carrying on the Sabbath. It was a really bad thing. Verses 15 and 16 of John 5. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who healed him. And this is why the Jewish leaders were persecuting Jesus because he was doing things on the Sabbath. There's nothing that speaks to sanctification any more strongly than does the proper keeping of the Sabbath. For sanctification is what the Sabbath is all about. Genesis 3, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, verse 2. And on the seventh day God ended his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, Shavuot, like first fruits, is always on the first day of the week. It's not on the seventh day of the week, but it is a holy Sabbath. Leviticus 23:20. On Shavuot, the priest shall wave the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord, and you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Just like the Shavuot bread depicts that all of the harvest is to be used for good, good things. 
The keeping of Shabbat shows that every day is to be used to do things for God, to give God, give God glory. But the leaders had used the Sabbath to bring glory to themselves, make themselves feel important. So Jesus admonished them in our last verse here, John 5, 17. My father continues to work, and I am also working. Now in Hebrew, Shabbat does not mean to be idle. It means to cease. That is, to cease one thing so as to begin another. Isaiah 66, 1 is really helpful here. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? Where is a place you ever have made that I may rest? A throne is not a place to sleep. <laughs> a throne is a place from which you rule. On the seventh day, God rested upon his throne. <laughs> he ceased his work of creating and began his work of ruling. And that is why the Father and the Son still work, says Jesus, for they continue to rule by doing good things. Now, to understand what ruling means for us, I'd like us to go back to Joshua 1, the same verse we just close to where we read before, to see what happened to those Israelites who, after 38 years of wandering, were now ready to go into the Promised Land. Joshua says, Joshua 1.14, All you fighting men who are ready for battle must cross the Jordan ahead of your fellow Israelites. You are to help them until the Lord gives them rest, as he has done for you, until they too have taken possession of the land. Now, that they would have rest did not mean they would relax in Canaan and lie down under a fig tree. It meant they could cease the struggles to obtain the land and begin the pleasant work of tilling the soil, of planting trees, of building houses. And their rest in the promised land relates to our rest in the Messiah. Hebrews 4, verse 8. If Joshua had really given them rest, God would not have spoken in the Psalms of a future day to enter his rest. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall into the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When we enter into God's rest, we no longer fight the battle to be good enough to be saved. Uh, Jesus won that battle already. But that doesn't mean we can just relax and continue in sin. Hebrews 4.11 says, Strive to enter God's rest so as not to fall into disobedience. You see, we're either striving to do good or we're falling into disobedience. There's not a middle ground of just doing nothing and being idle. Now, it may seem kind of contradictory to strive to enter God's rest, but to live a righteous life requires our intentionality. Hebrews 4.12, though, says it's God's word that guides the intentions of our heart. So this striving for good is not 
something we do out of guilt. It's something we do out of love. It's not something we do in our own power. We do it by God's grace. The man at the pool had been lost in sorrow for 38 years, but Jesus saw him. You may have pain and sorrow this morning. The Lord sees you. He desires for all of us sanctification, that through yielding to his spirit, we might do good things. Sanctification is a process. It will not be completed until we enter the, the world to come. But in the here and now, to live a sanctified life gives us joy in the pursuit of love, mercy, and humility. It's like the pleasant planting of trees in the promised land.